seven, Stan Met fans, how you all doing? Hope you're enjoying your Saturday. Happy weekend to you. Uh, still not much happiness in MLB land, however. And let's talk about that. Got to do what you got to do, right? Well, it looks like the lockout continues. Uh, right now, it doesn't look like there's a imminent sight to the ending of this. So let's give you the latest details. Uh, the MLBPA has approached the league with a new offer revolving around a 14-team postseason. Yes, I guess that's what a lot of you wanted, right? 14 teams in the postseason. Well, the MLB, unfortunately, was forced to cancel more spring training games. Yes, another week went by without a new CBA, and the league announced on Friday that spring training games can now begin no earlier than March 18th. So guess what, Irish people? There will be no baseball in St. Patty's Day. What are you going to do? I think that's the day the NCAA tournament begins. So that's one of those crazy Thursdays. So we'll all be watching basketball anyway, I guess. Now the first two series of the regular season have already been canceled. As MLB has made it clear that spring training must last for at least four weeks before the regular season can begin. So hopefully spring training isn't around July 4th. Would it still be spring training then if it begins on Independence Day? But enough of my nonsense. Let's continue. After unanimously rejecting MLB's final offer on March 1st, the Players Association has approached with an offer of its own to reopen talks on the 14-team postseason field. The MLBPA hopes that it can exchange this for more CBT flexibility, and that seems to be the major issue in all this among other issues. Now, prior to the 5 p.m. deadline on March 1st, MLBPA and MLB had agreed to a new 12-team format up from the 10-team format currently in place. Now, sources on both sides of CBA talks are hopeful that this can be the breakthrough needed to come to an agreement and start the season once again, according to reports. We shall see what happens. Met fans, we did learn from the 94 strike, so hopefully some of that knowledge, it's hard to believe, must be getting old, that was 28 years ago, but I remember it vividly when they just cut baseball from our lives. And uh, at the time, the, they went on strike on August 12, 1994, and believe it or not, the Mets were enjoying one of the best stretches of the season when players went on strike that day. It was a team that included some personalities we still remember to this day. Todd Hunley, Jeff Kent, Bobby Bonilla, Brett Saberhagen, John Franco, and a young first baseman named Rico Bronia, who the Mets had traded for earlier in the season. Now, I was a big fan of Bronia. I just admire He had a long swing, but I just liked watching him at bat. And the Mets have these alumni functions where they were having them Friday on home, day, home games on Friday. And Rico Bronia was there to meet and greet the fans. And he was a pretty nice guy. Hats off to Rico. Now, they weren't going to catch the Expos in the NL East. As you remember, the Expos were the big team that year. And a lot of people said they could have won the World Series. And Montreal never recovered after that strike. 
and the wild card in its first year of existence was also a long shot. Yeah, that was the first year it was going to be the wild card. But 13 victories in 21 games at least had stabilized the season that appeared to be spiraling out of control on the Dallas Green. Now, for a 24-year-old Bronya, who was basically a local kid, he was from Watertown, Connecticut, and he owned a 1.006 OPS and 138 plate appearances. So in the time he was playing, he was hitting the ball and getting on base. And it seemed like his time had arrived. But he also understood why the players chose to strike over MLB's plan to implement a salary cap after the season. Even Bronya says he was so much on the same page as to what we were doing as a team that one of the reasons I was playing well was I wasn't thinking selfishly at all. He was thinking about what could help the team. It was the same way with the strike for Rico. Uh, now, of course, the Mets didn't think they were going to make the playoffs to the World Series. So that hurt. Uh, but the Mets thought they had something coming together at that point with their hot streak. Now, the players ultimately won a ruling from the National Labor Relations Board that prevented the owners from unilaterally implementing a salary cap. All these years later, it's a de facto salary cap of sorts. And that's the competitive balance tax, which is another way of saying there's a salary cap. Because if you spend more than that, you're going to get punished with uh, fines and possible loss of draft picks. And I think when you break it down, that may be the largest fa factor in the labor battle that precipitated a lockout, lockout that has already caused a cancellation in the first two series of the regular season. I think the owners are realizing that uh, the players are catching on and the uh, it really is a salary cap uh, with the competitive balance tax. It's just another fancy way of saying it. Now, the games missed will be the first because of labor disputes since 1995 when the strike that began the previous summer concluded and a 144-game schedule was played. Uh, now, getting back to Rico Bronia, he played in the minor leagues for 2001 before a rare spinal arthritic condition pushed him into retirement. Whether he thought he would see another major league baseball work stoppage in his lifetime or conversely, he was surprised it took this long. Bronia said, I think there was a lot of peace as in case in real life. You sometimes go to sleep on things and the storms are rising in the shadows. It's just something there was a lot of money and people fight over money. All these other issues, minimum salary, super twos, are all pullbacks at the end of the day. We'll change that on the big nuggets. I almost think there is a method to the madness. When there's that much money involved, people are really paying attention. Now, of course, let's not kid ourselves. Major League Baseball has always been a business first and foremost. But that notion crystallized for Bronia and the Met teammates when teams opened spring training in 1995 with replacement players who crossed the union's picket line to play. Thankfully, it never got to the point those replacement players took the field in the regular season. Uh, now, when that started to happen, uh, people, the players got an assumption that the players were, who were on strike were just cattle. And uh, I don't think they thought they were cared that much by ownership. For them to think, even think about putting replacement players out there, and that kind of strengthened and emboldened the Players Association. Now, of course, it's going to weaken the game when you don't have your best product out there. Uh, MLB constantly has the best 1,000 or so players in the world that are capable of playing at that highest level in the world and should be playing at that level. And there was a sign with the strike in 94 that the owners didn't care about the game as much as they did the bottom line. 
and their actions that speak louder than words. The 95 season began under the expired collective bargaining agreement, and the two sides later negotiated a new deal. It's a tactic Bronio would like to see considered now, though he's not certain the owners have restoring the season at the top of their wish list. Uh, like I said, the players in 95 played under the expired CBA, and that is something they should consider now, unless they really are trying to break the union, which is a strong wind blowing in that direction. Now, if the owners are bent on that, it's a different game. And if they are not, and the owners are bent on really coming to a deal, then you go back and play on last year's rules. You could start opening day and be fine for opening day and negotiate it as you go. People would applaud that, I think. And to me, that's the most logical thing, but I don't think it's going to happen. I think this, this is going to get dirtier before it gets clean. Now, of course, the unfortunate reality is the lockout. Prospects such as Ronnie Mauricio and Mark Vientos Infielders who were placed on a 40-man roster after last season are ineligible for assignment to the minor leagues and will be on the sidelines when the Met Farm teams begin play next month. Now, neither Mauricio nor Vientos was expected to break camp with the major league team and can now be deprived of valuable minor league development time. Other Mets falling into this category include Khalil Leal, Nick Plummer, and Adam Euler. With the lockout unsettled, it appears the first game played by the Mets team this season will be AAA Syracuse's season opener against Grand Wilkes-Barre. I guess we have to get the MILB.TV package to actually watch some baseball on April 5th. That is Mets-related. Now, if MLB implements an international draft after next season, as the owners have proposed negotiations with the MLBPA, the Mets would be adversely affected, at least in the short term. The Mets have a top-flight international signing class in place for 2023, and that means agreements with international players are often reached one or two years before they can officially sign. And that continues the philosophy of signing fewer and more high-end prospects with large bonuses attached. That philosophy had been disrupted on their previous GM, Brody Van Wagenen, who preferred to disperse the Mets' international bonus money and uh, over numerous players. But I always say you go when you're going for prospects, you always go for quality over quantity. So that's where I disagree with Brody. You want to build that foundation with great players. Uh, but we'll see what happens. Uh, it's going to be interesting, like I said, and we can only wait and see what happens. Now, of course, the lockout's going to affect a lot of players who uh, are looking for career milestones and achievements. And when you look back at it, Fred McGriff is the perfect example, who was a power hitter and Iron Man. He hit the ninth most home runs in the majors during those two years combined, and he played in all but one of the Braves' 258 games. But it was 258 games rather than the standard 324 because of labor interruptions to the 1994 and 95 seasons. McGriff played every day, so he left as many as 66 games on the table. If he stayed at that pace as one of the mightiest bats of his era, he would have hit an additional 15 home runs. Few can truly understand baseball-induced labor pains like McGriff can. He had 493 home runs for his terrific career. Without those labor stoppages in 94 and 95, it's so hard to imagine he would not have hit seven more homers to reach 500. Would 500 have been the magic number to nudge McGriff from a strong candidate to a Hall of Famer? We shall see. Now, of course, over the years, the 500 homer plateau lost its luster to both the public and to Hall of Famers during the steroid era. But part of McGriff's award as a candidate was the perception that he came by his power naturally and played clean. 
McGriff did not get in during his 10 years on the writer's ballot, but he may get a second look this December via the Today's Era, Era Committee, which provides oversight by the writers. For the writers, I should say. Now, in March 2020, when COVID first shut down MLB, people were wondering what would happen to the projected borderline Hall of Fame cases. Now, the virus did cause a lot of games to be missed. And I'm only using McGriff as example because he too had fallen off the writer's ballot the previous year. And the 2020 season turned out to be 60 games. So you got to wonder what the addition of missing games due to the owner's lockout would mean for many of the same borderline candidates. Like McGriff, they are facing sustained missing time in two seasons. For McGriff, that might have cost him immortality. There are plenty of other active players who do not need to play another game to get into the hall, such as Kershaw, Pujols, and Trout. But let's use three examples. Well, the main example I'm going to use, I don't want to DV off the med end, but let's use Jacob deGrom. His case already was going to suffer from a lack of quantity. Now, deGrom did not become a pitcher until late in his career. His rise to the major was delayed by Tommy John surgery. He did not make his major league debut until a month before his 26th birthday. Now consider this, Kershaw made 182 regular season starts before turning 26. So the Grom was going to have to take the Roy Halladay route to Cooperstown. Halladay did not have his first meaningful season until he was 25. His excellence was condensed to a 10-year period. But that decade was so imbued with genius that Halladay was elected to in his first year on the ballot. But DeGrom has made nearly 200 fewer career starts than Halliday did. DeGrom was going with 12 starts during the pandemic season and 15 due to injury last year. He turns 34 in mid-June, and who knows if there will ever be games by then. Younger voters in particular are less interested in round numbers and accumulation and have a greater appreciation for rate stats and production compared to league averages. Both strong suits of DeGrom's. Still, I would think that a player will need considerably more bulk work than the Grom has now to raise his Hall of Fame odds substantially. He has nearly half as many career innings as does new teammate Max Scherzer, who I think is a lock-stock first-round ballot selection. Scherzer will, will have a plaque in Cooperstown guaranteed with his three Cy Youngs, plus a second-place, two-third-place, and two-fifth-place finishes in the voting. DeGrom is 100 or so starts shy of the total of fellow two-time Cy Young Award winner, Johan Santana, who fell off the ballot after one year. A third Cy Young Award would be huge for DeGrom's chances. Still, DeGrom needs games to have a shot, and games are apparently going to be lost in 2022. And that really hurts for a guy like Jacob DeGrom. Other examples I had in mind were Freddie Freeman and Giancarlo Stan. But we'll just keep this based on Jacob DeGrom today and not take up too much of your time. All right, now, as always, we take the time to commemorate the birth dates of Mets past and present on this day in Met history. Happy birthday to Larry Elliott, born on this day in 1938. Happy birthday to Les Rohr, born on this date in 1946. Happy birthday to Kevin Brown, born this date in 1966. And happy birthday to Mike Hessman, born this date in 1978. Okay, now let's delve into the career of Larry Elliott. As an outfielder, he appeared in 157 Major League games, all but 12 of them for the Mets. And he played for the Mets in 64-66. He was a native of San Diego, California. And guess where he attended high school? 
Herbert Hoover High School, the alma mater of Hall of Famer Ted Williams. He threw and batted left-handed and stood six foot two and weighed 200 pounds. Now, he was signed by the Pirates as a 20-year-old out of San Diego City College and spent four years in the Bucks farm system before making his major league debut with Pittsburgh in 62. As a minor leaguer, he flashed some home run power, hitting 16 homers in 58 and 61 and 25 and 59 with the Wilson Tobbs at the Class B Carolina League. Now, per the baseball rules, then enforced, Major League Baseball player clubs could keep 28 players on their rosters for the first 30 days of the regular season before cutting down to the 25-man active roster until September 1st. Now, Elliott received the first of his two early season trials for Pittsburgh in April 62 and appeared in eight games, including one as the club's starting right fielder and collecting three hits and ten at-bats. In his eighth and final appearance on May 30, pinch hit for pitcher Diomedes Olivio and hit a home run off eventual 24-game winner Jack Sanford of the San Francisco Giants. He then was sent down to AAA Columbus Jets where he hit 23 more homers but batted only 235 in 134 games. He followed a similar pattern in 63, making the Pirates out of spring training, but he only appeared sparingly, four games as a pinch hitter and then being sent to Columbus to cut down. That season, he had 26 homers for the Jets. Now, on December 16, 1963, the Pirates sold Elliott's contract to the Mets. Now, although Elliott spent part of 64 with the AAA Buffalo Bisons, hitting eight homers in 42 games, he spent most of the campaign in the majors getting into 180 games and starting 55 contests in center field in relief of Jim Hickman. Now, on August 11th, he gained measures of revenge against his old team when he doubled in homer, drove in two runs, and led the Mets to a 3-2 victory over the Pirates in a game shortened by rain. Elliott batted only 228 for the Mets, but hit nine homers and 256 at-bats. He then played the entire 65 season in the minor leagues, but the Mets took some of the sting out of the motion by loaning Elliott to his hometown San Diego Padres of the PCL, the AAA affiliate of the Cincinnati Reds. He started the 66 season with the Mets Jacksonville Suns AAA club, batting a career-high 303 with 11 home runs in 73 games, and was recalled in New York by New York in July. Elliott continued his hot hitting during his early appearances with a three-hit game and four RBIs against the Astros on July 18, and that pushed his batting average to 348. But although he started 53 games in corner outfield spots for the Mets through the end of the season, his average eventually declined to 246. Elliott began 67 season with Jacksonville. Then on May 10th, he was traded to the Kansas City Royals in what would be a significant trade for them as they received in return third baseman Ed Charles. Never throw a slider to the glider, Charles. And Eddie became a prominent member of the 69 Mets and would be identified with the Mets for many, many years. Elliott played three full seasons at the AAA level before retiring. All told, in 157 games, Elliott had 103 hits, including 22 doubles, two triples, and 15 home runs. Now let's talk a little bit about Les Brewer. Les was a British-born American baseball player for the Mets in the late 1960s. Yes, he was born in Lowestoft, England, where his father was serving with the U.S. Army Air Force. His mother was British. Six months later, he moved to Billings, Montana with his family, where he grew up, attended high school, and lived. Now, Roar, a left-handed pitcher, was pretty tall. He was listed at 6 foot 5 inches tall and 205 pounds, so he was a big guy at the time. 
and he was selected by the Mets in the first round. The second pick overall, so he was highly touted and prized as a draft pick of the 1965 MLB draft. Roar played in the minor leagues until being called up to play for the Mets near the end of the 67 season. Now, Roar's first game was on September 10, 1967, starting against the Dodgers at Chase Stadium. He went a full six innings, allowed only three runs, one of which was unearned, and was credited with the 6-3 victory. Eleven days later, he was even more effective, going eight shutout innings against the Dodgers in Dodger Stadium and gaining a 5-0 victory in which he defeated, get this, Hall of Famer Don Drysdale. His last game was on September 19, 1969. He stayed with the New York Mets for his entire career. In six games, if four as a starting pitcher, he compiled a 2-3 and one-loss record, no complete games, and an earned run average of 3.70 in 24 and a third innings. He allowed 27 hits, 17 bases on balls, and struck out 20. The beginning of the end of Roar's career came early in the 68 season, the final inning of a 24-inning game against the Astros. That was a game that lives in Met Folklore, that 24-inning game at the Dome. Now, entering the April 15th game as a relief pitcher in the 22nd inning and pitching through the 24th inning, unfortunately, Roar pulled the tendon in his pitching arm. After absorbing a 3-2 loss in his third career start against Dodgers on April 21st, he spent the remainder of the season on the Sabre list or back in the minor leagues. Roar made only one more appearance on the mound for the Mets as a relief pitcher against the Pirates late in 69. The following year, he spent in the high minors, and he was unconditionally released by the Mets when a routine physical discovered a ruptured disc in his lower back, scuttling a proposed trade to the Milwaukee Brewers. Unfortunately, Roar passed away recently in November 2020 at the age of 74. Now let's talk about Kevin Brown. No, not the Kevin Brown you're thinking about, who was a, a pretty damn good pitcher, and one time the highest pitcher, highest paid pitcher in baseball, but the Kevin Brown who played for the Mets from... Uh, for a few years. Who remembers him? Yes, he was with us in 1990. So you diehards, it was beginning in a decline for the Mets back when he was on the team. But uh, you guys remember him? He did pitch in the majors, like I said, for parts of three seasons, 1990 and 92. He finished his major league career with a 4.82 ERA in 89 and two-third innings. And he's now a baseball varsity coach in high school. Like I said, he was signed with the Braves in 86 and was traded to the Mets the following year. And after pitching for the Mets for part of the 90 season, he was traded to the Brewers. Following the 91 season, he was waived by the Brewers and claimed by the Mariners, where he pitched his final season in 92. Brown's numbers with the Mets? Are you asking? Okay, if you're asking, let's deliver. Kevin Brown... Did not have too long of a career with the Mets. He pitched in two games, uh, two innings, and he had the ultimate ERA of 0.00. So there's Kevin Brown in a Mets career in a nutshell. Now let's talk about a minor league legend, Mike Hessman. Mike Hessman uh, was a professional first baseman and third baseman, and right now he's the current assistant hitting coach for the Detroit Tigers. He played for the Braves, the Tigers, Mets, and then he moved on to the Nippon Professional Baseball League in Japan and played for the Oryx Buffaloes. Now get this, Hessman holds the all-time record for International League home runs, where he hit 200, his 259th on June 30, 2014, 
breaking Ollie Carnegie's record set in 1945. In 2015, he broke Buzz Arlett's record for the most career minor league home runs, hitting his 433rd home run on August 3rd, 2015. This guy should have been in the movie Bull Durham as a real-life character. He had quite a minor league career. Uh, he was originally selected in the 15th round of the uh, 1996 MLB draft by the Atlanta Braves. Uh, his first major league hit was a pinch hit home run on August 15th off a New York Mets pitcher, August 26, 2003, off Mets pitcher Mike Stanton. Now, he signed a minor league contract with the Tig Tigers on January 7, 2005. And he played for the whole season and helped them win the International League Championship for the first time in 38 years. He batted 214 with 28 homers and 74 RBIs. And he spent the entire 2006 season with the Mud Hens, contributing to the Mud Hens' second consecutive Governor's Cup. Though he hit 24 home runs that season, he hit just 165. Can you say Dave Kingman? Okay, you did. And that's what Mike Hessman was like in his career. He played 117 games for the Mud Hens in 2007, hit 254 with 31 homers and 101 RBIs. On June 1st, he hit his 68th career home run with the Mud Hens, breaking Irv Beck's 107-year-old franchise record. He appeared in 17 games with the Tigers in 2007, uh, hit 235 with four homers and 12 RBIs. And on August 28, 2007, he was named the International League's Most Valuable Player and joined Phil Hyatt, Tim Tuffle, and Joe Liss as the only Mud Hens to win the award. Yes, Tim Tuffle was a Mud Hen, and he won the Most Valuable Player Award in the International League. There you go. There's a future trivia question for you. Uh, he began the 2008 season with Toledo on July 16, 2008. He was named to the United States National Baseball Team for the 2008 Summer Olympics. Now, despite missing an entire minor league season, a month of the minor league season, Hessman did manage to hit 34 homers for the Mudheads in 2008. He appeared at 12 games for the Tigers, hit 296 with five homers and seven RBIs. On September 4th, 2009, Hessman played all nine positions while with the Mud Hens. Yes, he's one of those guys that played all nine positions in one game. He started a catcher and ended as the pitcher, but he blew the save and took the loss. But nonetheless, he pitched. In total, he had 217 with 23 homers and 77 RBIs in 2009, and he became a free agent at the end of the season. Now, on December 8th, 2009, Hessman signed a minor league deal with the Mets, the Mets assigned Hessman to the AAA Buffalo Bisons, where he had 274 with 18 homers and 58 RBIs in 64 games. He appeared in 32 games for the Mets in 2010, mostly as a pinch hitter and batted 127 with one homer and six RBIs. Now, on November 10th, Hessman was outrighted by the Mets, but he refused the assignment and became a free agent. He signed with the Oryx Buffaloes of the Nippon Professional Baseball League for the 2011 season. He appeared in 48 games for Oryx, Batted 192 with six homers and 14 RBIs. In 2012, Hessman paid, played with the Oklahoma City Redhawks, a AAA affiliate Astros, and again he continued his home run hitting ways with 35 homers and 78 RBIs while batting uh, 231 in 123 games. Again, he kicked around the minor leagues, and on August 3rd, 2015, 2015, while playing for the Mud Hens, he hit his 433rd career home run, a grand slam, off Dustin McGowan of the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs, setting a new minor league baseball record 
for most home runs in their career, surpassing the record set by Buzz Arlett of the Oakland Oaks in 1937. He is one of only six players in history to hit over four home runs in the minor leagues. And on November 28, 2015, he announced his retirement. So he is a minor league legend. And if you didn't know about him, now you do. He was a legend in the minors. Okay, now it's time for today's Met Trivia and Jeopardy question of the day. Who's ready? Get those pens and pencils and paper ready to lock in your answers. Here is today's trivia question. What Met player holds the team record for highest slugging percentage in one season? Think it over, lock in your answers, and while you're doing that, once you're done with that, try to answer this Jeopardy question today. Two clues. In September 1998, he hit 10 home runs, including three grand slams, then a record for major league rookies, until it was broken by Alexei Ramirez in 2008. And he wore number 43 as a Met. Think it over. Lock in your answers, and at the end of the podcast, we'll be back to reveal the correct answers. I hope you do well. You guys have been doing well on this, so good luck. Now what's going on the greatest baseball group for the New York Mets there is on Facebook, New York Mets Baseball, a way of life. If you're not a member and belong to Facebook, please do join. Once again, it's New York Mets Baseball, way of life. And don't forget, we do have a Twitter presence now. We post things from the group and from all media sources about the New York Mets on that site. So check that out. And if you're not a subscriber to this podcast, by all means, what are you waiting for? Please subscribe and you'll be updated every time one is up and running. We try to do one every day, even when this damn labor lockout's happening. So check it out. Uh, Hit subscribe to whatever platform you're listening to, and you'll get notified when one is up. And why, oh why, would you want to miss one of these podcasts? I don't know why. So please do join. Now let's talk about what's going on in the group. Our good friend Mike Freed, who has basically been our lockout correspondent, posting all these great updates as to what's going on. He uh, posted about Buster only posting about two sides looking to jumpstart the CBA talks and having a 14-team post, postseason field. And uh, they're hoping the players are open to do this to exchange more flexibility on the CBT numbers and other issues. Uh, we pictured some uh, ticket stubs from Tom Seaver's memorable comeback day as a Red at Shea Stadium, his first game back at Shea back in August 21, 1977. And we put up a poster of the 1986 Mets baseball like it ought to be subway sign. You want to check that out. That was pretty cool. Uh, we showed the Mets celebrating in 73. Tug McGraw pouring some champagne over his steady Eddie Crane pool. Like I said, every day we have good stuff. We showed fans coming to the ballpark in 65 uh, at Shea Stadium, meandering outside the uh, gates. And as always, we mentioned... Did you listen to Bob Murphy, Lindsey Nelson, and Ralph Kiner? They were the voices of our youth, weren't they? And also, well, let's see what else we were talking about. A lot of good stuff, as always. Uh, we showed a picture of uh, the late great Casey Stengel uh, trying to listen in on Duke Snyder and Gil Hodges. And we mentioned that on six years ago today. Jacob DeGrom, we showed a cover to Daily News where he was refusing to sign the contract in protest. And he appeared to be ready to play hardball with the Mets, the headline said. So you want to check that out, too. 
And then we also mentioned among 59 pitchers who tossed a minimum of 500 innings from 2002-10 to 2012, R.A. Dickey posted the 10th lowest ERA at 2.95. So check it out. It's all in the group. If you're not a member, you'll be missing out if you do. If you don't join, I should say. So check it out. Okay, now it's time. I guess all of you have locked in your answers by now. Uh, I see one of you is still with the pen in your... Put that pen down. Put that pen down. It's time to lock in your answers. Okay, here we go. Here's yesterday's trivia question. What Met player holds the team record for highest slugging percentage in one season? Well, the correct answer is Mike Piazza with a slugging percentage of 614 in the year 2000. Congrats to Kareem Haywood on being the first to submit the correct answer. Now, yesterday's Jeopardy, two clues. In September 1998, he hit 10 home runs, including three grand slams, then a record for Major League rookies until it was broken by Alexei Ramirez in 2008. And he wore number 43 as a Met. Well, the correct response to this Jeopardy uh, clues are, who is Shane Spencer? Again, guess who got it right? Yes, Kareem Haywood was the first to submit the correct answer. He has been knocking the ball out of the ballpark. Way to go. Well, that's going to wrap it up for another day here. Another day without Met Baseball. And it looks like the earliest we'll have spring training games is March 18th. But if you need your daily dose of Mets, just listen in here. We'll keep you posted to what's going on in Met World and talk about the good old days when the Mets actually played baseball. So until then, enjoy your day. It's a Saturday. A little cold out, but it's the weekend, so enjoy the day. And uh, we'll talk to you real soon. Again, thank you for your support. It means the world to me, and I'm so flattered that so many of you are listening. So let's go Mets, and we'll talk soon.